Hello, this is the Canola Watch Podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. The topic today is early weed control with an emphasis on pre-seed burnoff. My guests are... I'm Clark Brenzel. I'm the Fermenturial Specialist in Weed Control with Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture. Ian Neff, agronomist with the Canola Council of Canada. This podcast ended up going a little longer than average, so I'm going to repeat the concluding statements right here at the beginning before we get into the full conversation. We start with Ian's key takeaway and then Clark's. If I have one thing that I would like growers to do this season with their pre-seed burn-off, would be to add a tank mix partner to their glyphosate and spray as early as you can. As soon as you can get into the field with your sprayer, start applying that burn-off. Your sprayer can travel a lot better on fields that aren't suitable for seeding. And so get that stuff done early over all your fields and then start seeding. Now here's the conversation from beginning to end. All right, guys, we'll start with you, Clark. Uh, Why is early weed control so important? Just about every researcher that's done any work through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and maybe a little bit into the, the teens here in the 2000s, has done work on early or time of weed removal uh, in crops. It always comes out, it doesn't seem to matter what the crop is or what the weed is. Removing the weed earlier uh, provides the crop with a better opportunity to uh, express its maximum yield. Canola is a fairly competitive crop if you look at various crops we grow around in Western Canada, but right off the gate, it's a little slow, it's a little small. Um, so any advantage you can get it off the bat is really good. On the, the other thing in canola is we do have uh, volunteer canola to worry about. That's a specific problem to canola. So getting rid of those early um, can be a, bi- a big problem. The weeds are causing uh, moisture loss or taking up the moisture their crop could be using, which in a drier year in that top inch, because we're shallow seeding canola, can be really important. Uh, you know, nutrients as well are getting removed. But in canola specifically, there's also that, I think, that newer angle of, Club root weeds, any of the brassica weeds, if we can get rid of them early, including volunteer canola, removing a potential threat or, you know, we miss them in a later application and, and suddenly we have, uh, even in our club root resistant canola, we might have susceptible spreading club root around or uh, building more spore load. And even though we might have a good management plan for club root, volunteer escapes are that extra reason to make sure we're controlling it early, getting it before it causes other issues. At this point, Clark starts a fairly detailed explanation of the relationship between herbicide resistance risk and weed size. In the area of non-target site resistance, or the other name for it is metabolic resistance, that if you wait for that plant to get to a larger size before you apply the herbicide to it, then what you're, what's happening is you're getting a concept called biodilution. And by extension, what you're doing is that you're reducing the rate that's being applied to that weed. And by doing that, you're providing more opportunity for that weed that that may have that trait of being able to break down that herbicide quicker, reduce its translocation, um, manage that herbicide within the plant to to, uh, collect it and put it into a garbage can within the plant you're giving that plant the opportunity to uh, take advantage of that mechanism that it may have in it and allow that plant to persist. Whereas if you're applying at an early stage, you're getting the maximum rate possible into that weed. 
and you have less chance of finding that individual that has a slight advantage to the basic population for being able to manage that herbicide within the plant um, outside of a target site mutation. Okay, so let's go down that rabbit hole just for a sec. The You're okay. saying that the, as the plants are getting bigger, so that they're a bigger target, so they should be taking on more herbicide, but the, the even so the ratio of, of herbicide or active ingredient to, to, to the size of the plant is less? The, yeah, the ratio of surface area to volume of the plant um, ends up being less. So what happens is that as your, as your surface area increases by double, your volume increases by triple as kind of a very simple, simplistic example. So as that plant, let's say that plant goes from the two-leaf stage to the six-leaf stage, and let's just say for simple math that you're saying that that's a three times increase in surface area, which is probably a little more than that because you're getting bigger leaves occurring, you're getting a nine times increase in volume of that plant. So you're getting less and less concentration of the herbicide within the body of the plant. On that note, then this, I think you said metabolic. Uh, is Do we have any cases of that in Western Canada or is this theoretical at, at this stage? Um, there's a couple of cases. Um, one thing, one place where we do find it quite frequently is in glyphosate resistance. Um, and it, and Metabolic is one pathway under that non-target site uh, class of resistance in that it's, it's taking many genes in order to develop resistance versus just that one mutation that you get with a target site type resistance. Um, an example would be um, glyphosate-resistant kochia is the target site is still susceptible in those kochia plants that are resistant, there's just many more target sites spread throughout that resistant plant. And so what happens is it, it binds with all the glyphosate that gets applied to that plant. And then there's lots of that target site left over for the, for the plant to still continue to grow. Um, one of the species that we're aware of that actually takes advantage of that sort of true metabolism type um, activity is green foxtail or wild millet uh, resistance to group twos. And so typically what we'll find with group twos is that'll be a mutated target site that results in resistance. But in the case of green foxtail, there's several cases out there that we're finding that that plant is able to break down that group two herbicide in the same way that say a wheat plant would be able to break it down. The bottom line again is that this is another reason why early wheat control is preferred. Exactly. Ian, anything more on that topic before we come back to the, the timing? Uh, no, I was just thinking back to the timing. So, you, you, you know, you're losing staging on some of these plants. Your effective dose is less on some of these plants if you're waiting. If we look at some of the tank mix partners or even some of the chemistries we're using on certain kiwis like kochia, you also want to spray early just because we're going to lose staging on them, right? Some of them are only effective when the plants are really small. 
and so spraying early on that or if we especially in a year like this or maybe we didn't have a lot of uh, fall weed control some of those winter annuals that are overwintering could be kind of large and again we're going to lose staging if we don't spray early so there's the herbicide resistance aspect there's also just the the plant size big plants are a lot harder to kill we're going to have to up our dose we're going to have to you know we're going to say we might start to lose a few options that just aren't effective on a really big overwintering plant so another reason to be spraying early and so we've got lots of research out there again that says that if we apply a herbicide for those things in the fall that's the best if we apply it in very early spring that's the next best and if we wait until just before we seed a, maybe a later seeded crop that's probably the worst case scenario for a burnoff next question if you can make a general statement on timing is pre-seed burnoff better than early post-emergence when it comes to the early seeding choices Ian, do you want to start? And then Clark, uh, I think you may want to dig into more of what you just said in, in this answer. Ian? Sure. Right, yeah. So if I have to make a general rule and I don't know the field and I don't know anything, yeah, early, an early pre-seed burnoff is way better than a post, uh, than a later application. Uh, the, it, it comes a little more nuanced on, you know, if, assuming we've done a great job of controlling our winter annuals, we've done a great job of controlling overwintering stuff, um, especially some of the early, early seeded crops that are going to go in the ground. If there are no weeds there, you know, catching the flush later when it actually occurs is better than just spraying no weeds. But assuming there are weeds in this field, an early application is generally a better way to go. Assuming we can put a good dose on, we can get a good application on, you know, it's not too cold or, the you know, it froze the night before and so we're getting a poor application. But assuming we can get a good application on and kill, and there are weeds there to kill, and we can kill them, earlier is better. Just to quantify, when, when uh, Ian says there's weeds there, that means you get into your field on your hands and knees and you look very, very closely at the soil surface to see if there's weeds there, not just a drive-by. Because there can be lots of weeds there and you never see them from the road. Um, we did some research at the U of S when I was there uh, with Kosha, and we looked at uh, doing fall 2,4-D applications or very early spring uh, applications of 2,4-D with glyphosate. And when we were putting the treatments on, which you put on regardless of whether there's weeds or not, we put those those treatments on and went. This is kind of a waste of time because there's nothing here. But when we went to observe what was going on the next year, um, there was way less weeds in that plot that we had applied very early that we thought that there was no weeds in. So you have to really look closely because those weeds may not be very big. They may be as big as the head of a pin, um, but they're there. So you have to be really, really, really diligent about checking to see see what is actually there in the field and not just a quick glance as you're driving by the field in the truck. Do you want to dig into the um, what you're saying, Clark, about the those, you, you laid out three options, which was fall and then early pre-seed, late pre-seed. So you divided pre-seed into two options. And then early yeah. post-emergence. Can you can you clarify that again on what you think is the better ones? Sure. Um, when we're when we're looking at perennial plants or we're looking at winter annual plants, um, 
there's there's research there going back into the 1950s and 1960s, looking at uh, fall let's say for the brassica weeds, fall 2,4-D application versus application in the spring. Um, you get better control and you get better impact on yield when you make that application in the fall versus the application in the spring. And just oh, about 10 years ago or so now, uh, the research team at the U of S did some work on, well, if we can't get into the field in the fall, uh, let's see what the difference is between early timing and late timing, particularly if we're doing a late seeding operation. And so what they, their early timing was, let's say the first of May, their late timing was the, the latter portion of May. So maybe the third week in May. What they did is that they put a treatment on just before their early seedment or early seeding date. So their burn-off timing was just before they planted on the early seeding date. And they also put another treatment down for one of the two later seeding dates. And then the third treatment was they put the burn-off treatment down just before they seeded the late seeding date. So now you've got early early burn off, early seeding, early burn off, late seeding, late burn off, late seeding as your treatments. What they found is that the early burn off timing, there is little difference in in yield for those those crops that were seeded at different times, but the weed control was done at the same time, uh, they found that those two yielded very similarly, whereas the burn-off that was done just before the later seeding date, there was a reduction in yield compared to the other two. And is that because the, those weeds having grown longer took up more nutrients, more moisture? Is that what the key factor was? It, it would be some type of, some type of, resource um, acquisition by the weed that was in competition with what the crop was going to be able to use. Really all we saw in that research was the end result of it is that the, the yield was the same for the two early sprayed plots and the later sprayed plot, the yield was less. Ian jumps in here with a common farmer challenge to the early spraying message. If I think about what a farmer's going to say, they're going to say, yeah, this is good, but I'm going to have a late flush of weeds. That means that this study probably didn't have, and that's going to make, means I should probably, I got to wait for that flush. That's always what farmers, there's, there's a perception out there. There's a group of farmers that like to wait for the flush. What do you, what do you say to them? You spray your pre-burn early. And then I think that, that ties in well with our in-crop messaging on, you know, especially in canola, you can spray really early. You do have that option. Should you get a ill-timed t- uh, flush? You do have that option for that second in-crop application, which isn't always necessary, but you do have that. So you can spray that first application really early in season, and then you've kind of checked all the boxes. You've got that early season weed control with all its various benefits, and then that in-crop application happens nice and early. And then, you know, if you go a bit early, if there is a later flush, you could go again if needed, but you might be fine with one really early season in-crop application. Keeping in mind that there are certain weeds like cleavers that 
will have an impact on on the final product if they're present as dockage um, and have a significant impact on on the person that's buying that that grain for their the crushing operation um, with that kind of caveat in mind let's assume that we're not dealing with cleavers per se and we're dealing with uh, another weed that's just strictly a competition issue if you have a weed that emerges roughly a week after the crop it will have no impact on yield versus that weed never showing up the next part of the conversation is about tips to make your pre-seed burn-off as effective as possible. How do you make the most of a pre-seed burn-off when it comes to timing or, or uh, daytime conditions, frost risk, that kind of thing? Rates are important. Uh, tank mixing is important. Um, so as far as rates, again, some of this stuff comes back to scouting. You want to look at your field ahead of time and say, okay, how many weeds are there? How big are they? What rate do I want to do? What rate can I get away with? Is a half liter equivalent of glyphosate, is that enough to kill everything that's there? Um, do I need to up my rates because, oh, there are some bigger weeds that uh, some other previous application may be missed, or is there a concern there? They escaped. Um, so rate is a good one, but again, scouting is really important for that. Frost risk. Um, we know that, you know, early season, um, frost can actually kill some of those earlier, you know, some volunteer canola that comes up really early might actually be killed off by a frost. But there are some other weeds that are a little more frost resistant, something that's overwintered perhaps. Is it actively growing? Is it green? Is it actually going to take up herbicide and die or is it just kind of sitting there? Again, if we apply the herbicide a bit too early or on an un, you know, just after a hard frost, could be that we don't actually get that control. Um, Daytime conditions, again, you want, you know, above 10 degrees is ideal. Uh, warmer is better. So if you have, if you have to cherry pick, when do you spring? Usually that warm afternoon, is there a frost coming? Uh, environmental conditions, especially on the edges of the spray season, are fairly important. So that's something to keep an eye on. And sometimes there's not a lot of great opportunities. Again, going back to, well, you know, some of the herbicide layering, having that insurance of having something kicking around. What happens if we get a week of rain or if we get it's cold every night and it's almost freezing or you're not sure if it's going to freeze or it's really windy? Having something, uh, doing a, a, this, a little bit of the work is really helpful in these cases. Sometimes we don't have a lot of great spray windows early season. So again, if you have that opportunity early where it is warm enough, the frost risk is low, you have weeds that are actively growing, it's a great time to make, uh, to, uh, you know, take take advantage of that and get some spraying done, whether regardless of whether you're gonna when you're gonna see the crop. And and with those with those those weather conditions and daytime conditions, generally, like if we we kind of have to look at at the specific herbicides and the way that they work within the plant a little bit. And if we look at glyphosate, which is going to be our our kind of foundation product for our burn off. Um, that 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 product relies on good sunshine and warm conditions in order to work optimally so you want to make sure you do it on a sunny day that has the opportunity to get warmer later in the day uh, and keep in mind that on that sunny day you're going to get some microclimate at the ground level as well where you've got sunshine coming down and and being on that ground in between the stubble and warming that area up in between the stubble, whereas the air temperature at, at a couple of feet above that may not be as warm as it is actually down at the ground level. So kind of keep that in mind as well. Um, but uh, 
what's really important for those daytime conditions is the for the for the sunny conditions and the warm conditions is for those those more established plants like perennials and winter annuals um, they've got that bigger root system and that's the target of your application and so you want to make sure that you if you've got those species in the system that you um, you give that glyphosate the best advantage by putting it on in that warmer sunnier day um, if you've just got annual seedlings there and you happen to get the glyphosate on um, where it's where it's a little bit on the cooler side and maybe not as sunny or maybe the sunshine kind of goes in and out a little bit uh, a little bit overcast or partly cloudy or whatever um, that stuff even if all you're doing it it gets trapped in the leaves and all you do is burn the leaves off for for small seedlings that's fine because they'll die because they need those early leaves to kind of get launched off and going. But those plants that have the more established root system and crown system, if you just burn the leaves off of those, then they'll just recover and they'll keep growing afterwards if you've, you've made that application in a situation where the glyphosate doesn't translocate through the plant very well. Ian, anything more on that before we go to tank mixing? Uh, well, this kind of actually would segue, segue us into tank mixing a little bit. Um, water volume. Glyphosate is one that you can use at lower water volumes and it's fine. But if we are adding tank mix partners, looking at how those herbicides work, some of those or more of those chemistries are contact-based chemistries. And so water volume becomes a lot more important. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking, especially when we are targeting tiny weeds, we want to get a good dose to them and we're trying to get coverage on some of these weeds water volume is really important when we're adding a tank mix partner to our glyphosate. The other thing we also have to kind of keep in mind is our water quality. Um, that one of the other reasons that we reduced water volumes with glyphosate is to reduce the impact of hard water antagonism. And so if we're increasing our water volume now with our, our burn-off application to accommodate those, uh, those contact herbicides, we need to kind of keep in mind what about our water quality situation and if we have hard water we have to make sure that we add that ammonium sulfate or other uh, water conditioner in there that will counteract the um, hard water ions in that in, the, in that solution and ammonium sulfate is pretty much the universal um, management tool for those hard water ions we close with a conversation about tank mixing yeah, so there's two main reasons why we would add a tank mix to the pre-seed glyphosate. Uh, the first one is resistance management, um, reducing that selection pressure, having two effective modes of action. Um, hopefully, we're reducing the selection pressure on glyphosate. Glyphosate being the pillar, the backbone of our no-till agriculture in Western Canada, we really need to keep that as an effective mode of action. Um, so adding something else to it, what both of them are active on these especially these highly these feeds that are have been identified as being prone to glyphosate resistance or going to prone to resistance in general we're adding that second mode of action reducing it's fairly easy to do you know this should be part of a larger integrated weed management plan to reduce selection pressure but again this is one of the easiest things that growers can do and this is a great timing we have a wide variety of weeds germinating early spring these are ones that are clearly 
if not controlled, going to be germinating or uh, setting seed, putting seed back into the seed bank. Again, we've already talked about how important they are uh, for uh, yields, for crop yield. These are critical weeds. So that's the first reason is just herbicide resistance management. Uh, the second one is improved weed control. Um, you know, we, we especially if you have target specific weeds that are giving you problems that are maybe our uh, glyphosate alone or timing hasn't been ideal. We're, we're getting some escapes. So cleavers, obviously, we can add a product that's actually improving our control of that weed in addition to minimize or reducing some of the selection pressure. Um, or if you have kochia, you're not sure, you don't think it's glyphosate resistant. Again, two modes of action. But also, you might get some better control on that kochia if you add a tank mix partner. So there's kind of those two reasons. These are fairly cost-effective ways of adding another step into your uh, integrated weed management plan on the farm. They take a little more planning. Um, you know, we might talk about changing your water volume. Uh, you're going to have to do a bit more rinsing in between. Maybe if you're doing a, a pre-burn between canola and then cereals, it might have been all glyphosate. Now, you know, rinsing the sprayer is really important, especially if you get some group twos that we're adding in. But it's a really effective way of reducing some of that selection pressure. You're doing those tank mixes with with glyphosate for control of broadleaf species, and there's a couple of things that, that kind of make me a little bit nervous in that there are really no tank mixes available to uh, provide that additional mode of action for grass species, and we often forget about that when we hear multiple modes of action. Oftentimes, that multiple modes of action is in reference to broadleaf species, and the grass species is left hanging out there with just the one active ingredient um, managing that grass species. And that applies to that applies to glyphosate in the burn down. That applies to uh, some of the in-crop herbicides as well. Is that when you hear on the on the radio that we've got multi-mode of action activity? look into that very, very closely and look at the components in there um, and what groups are controlling what. One of the plans that we want to try and do in our guide to crop protection in future years is, is to add some more of that information into the guide in a handy spot so that you know what active ingredients are controlling what. Um, the other component to that is that if you're using a contact tank mix, the thing that 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 worries me a little bit sometimes is especially on those um, weeds with more root mass, so the perennials and the winter annuals again, is are you actually inhibiting the activity of the glyphosate by putting in that product that burns down those weed weed leaves very quickly? And so one thing that I might suggest to producers is even to uh, increase their glyphosate rate by maybe a factor of 25% or 50%. Um, I don't know that you can get any more economical um, herbicide than glyphosate. And so adding a little bit more of what you're putting in the tank when you have those those tank mixes will one, help overcome some of that hard water antagonism a little bit because you are putting more water in the tank and uh, overcome some of the the time frame restrictions that those contact herbicides put into the system. Sometimes what you'll get is that some of those, those contact herbicides will burn leaf tissue off in a matter of 
of an hour to a handful of hours, whereas uh, glyphosate is absorbed by the plant and translocated through the plant for 24 to 48 hours. So you're, if you're using that burn-off product, you're really kind of truncating that, that translocation to some degree. So adding a little bit more glyphosate into that can compensate for that, that loss of time window to translocate within the plant as well. Clark expands the multi-mode of action conversation with a bit about soil active herbicides. And maybe this is a good time to introduce the concept of soil active herbicides. So the soil active product reduces the number of weeds for the post-emergent product to deal with. And so that reduces the risk of developing resistance to that post-emergent product. And the post-emergent product is there as a backstop to that soil active product if the control with that product isn't exactly perfect. And so in that case, you've got kind of the best worlds going on and that you've got that blanket of coverage that's reducing weeds overall and then you've got the the next application there that's in crop that's kind of coming in to make sure that it catches any stragglers that were missed by the soil application and maybe those were just escapes because the application just wasn't perfect or maybe it's ones that are resistant to the soil active herbicide and now you're getting them with the post-emergent herbicide so that leads into that whole soil layering discussion as well. Clark describes the pre-seed options for soil active herbicides for fields planned for canola. There's, there's a couple going into canola and by and large, those are for cleavers control. And so you're looking at uh, one is command, which is uh, the active ingredient is clomazone. And that's strictly for controlling cleavers ahead of canola. And then the other one is quinclorac, uh, which Typically, we think of as a post-emergent product, but that also has a pre-seed burndown uh, timing as well. And it is a, it's a soil active uh, or a soil residual herbicide as well, and very active on cleavers. Okay, just for fun, guys, let's let's talk about two specific weeds. We got glyphosate-resistant kochia. Uh, okay. Or, or you've got just a lot of kochia, and you don't want to select for for those that might uh, become or be glyphosate resistant. What do you use for a tank mix in that case? Uh, so if this is before canola, uh, something with carfentrazone in it. So carfentrazone, AIM, Clean, uh, clean Start. There's a, there's a number of canola specific ones that have the group 14 carfentrazone. That's one of your good options. If your kochia is really small, uh, and depending if you have other weeds that are ever bromoxynol, which is also in a variety of pre-burn tank mix partners, um, it will also work if they're really small. But if they're, if kochia is your bigger, your biggest focus, uh, something with carfentazone in it is probably your better option for canola. Let's say you've got, and then Clark, you kind of talked about the grassy weeds. You've got wild oats with group one and two resistance. The options that we've got there now is to look at something like a fall uh, group three application uh, or very early spring group three application prior to canola in order to add another active ingredient in there um, to backstop the glyphosate and and help reduce the selection pressure again the, the control of the wild oats doesn't have to be perfect because 
essentially resistance is a numbers game and the the odds of finding resistance to glyphosate is in any particular population of wild oats the mutation rate could run in the order of uh one in 10 million to one in a billion um so the odds are really really low but if you've got a really really heavy wild oat population you've just ramped up the odds of finding a resistant individual so by putting that soil active product down like like uh, an edge or a trifluralin, you're reducing that population going into the glyphosate application. And you're, you're taking some of that risk away of developing that um, uh, glyphosate tolerant wild oat as well. We keep, if we only use the single mode of action to manage weeds, we're on something called the herbicide treadmill. Uh, the herbicide resistance treadmill is that we're using a herbicide until such point as that herbicide doesn't work anymore or herbicide group doesn't work anymore and then we're shifting to the next herbicide group and we're using that to death and we're eliminating that option for managing that weed and then we're moving on to the next one and then we're moving on to the next one so if we keep doing that we keep eliminating all of our options and we keep painting ourselves into a corner so if we say there's a one in a one in a ten million chance of finding resistant individual to group three, which is a fairly robust herbicide as far as resistance goes generally. And then you combine that with the risk of finding a resistant individual to again glyphosate, a fairly robust herbicide uh, from the resistance standpoint. Again, one in ten million to one in a hundred million. So if you combine those together, just it's the number of zeros you've got in that in that string that uh, is your defense against resistance. I think we're done, but what I'd really like mm -hmm. to collect from from the two of you is is a, a one sentence soundbite conclusion. If you could wrap everything up, if you want if you want farmers to do to do one thing this year uh, with regard to pre-seed burn-off, what would it be? If I had one thing that I would like growers to do this season with their pre-seed burn-off, would it be to add a tank mix partner to their glyphosate and spray as early as you can. Clark, what's your one sentence? Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. So that essentially is as soon as you can get into the field with your sprayer, Start applying that burn off and keep burning off until you can't burn off anymore. And the field may not be suitable for your cedar, but your sprayer can travel a lot better on fields that aren't suitable for seeding. And so get that stuff done early over all your fields and then start seeding. Thanks, guys. But they're not done. And it, it, yeah, and, and maybe just to emphasize that, remember you're farming the crop, not farming the weeds, but the weeds have a big impact on how you farm your crop. Yeah, the one thing that we, like, we talked about it just a touch, but like the, the good scouting, that's the fundamental for all of these things. You need the right information to make the decisions, like, you know, what tank mix partners, yeah. is, can I apply, like any of these things we've talked about, it all comes down to actually boosting the field, scouting, 
to see what's going on to make those decisions. Like you can't overemphasize the importance of that. Know, know what you're putting in your tank. Keep in mind that there's over 270 brand names of herbicides in our guide to crop protection, but there's still only about, let's say 60 active ingredients in there. And really there's only about 30 to 40 that get used in annual crop production on an ongoing basis. So you can whittle down that pool of candidates pretty quickly by understanding your, your active ingredients. Thanks, guys. Good stuff. Thank you. Very welcome, Jay. For more weed management tips, please visit canolaencyclopedia.ca or canolawatch.org. Canola Watch is a research-based agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada in cooperation with the Provincial Canola Grower Associations, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.